all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're taking your calls during this hour concerning any kind of health issues or topics that you need answered. You can always give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or if you're not able to call or you have a question that comes up at some other time, you can always email us. The email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody is staying well. A uh, little bit of loosening of some of the restrictions that we've had this week, and I want to caution people about that uh, as it relates to COVID, and uh, make sure that you are social distancing as appropriately as you can. Um, there are some businesses, I know a lot of them have been hurting pretty bad since um, since we've been sheltering at home in the state and uh, in the region, uh, but uh, going to get those businesses back open um, as safely as possible please, please don't uh, take this as a everything is okay and you can go back to the way we were doing things. This is going to be a uh, a long, slow process, but it is nice to see a little bit of movement in that direction. So uh, about 6,500 or so cases of COVID now diagnosed in the, uh, in the state, and that's through testing. Uh, we have ramped up our testing quite a bit, both locally and throughout the state at many different locations. And unfortunately, about 250 deaths uh, from COVID so far, although we've started to see a little bit of a plateau of that in the last uh, week or so. So we're hoping that that's going to plateau or decrease within the the coming weeks. I do want to encourage everyone, particularly those of you who are sheltering at home still, particularly if you are at increased risk, if you're over the age of 65, or if you have any chronic diseases, uh, those being diabetes, hypertension, heart failure, any kind of chronic lung disease, uh, please, if you have problems, do call your doctor's office. They may not see you in the same way, but they're probably doing about the same thing that we're doing is uh, we've, we've shifted a lot of our visits to telehealth visits where we can actually talk and see patients if they have devices at home, like a cell phone, uh, a smartphone that they can do that on. And it's a wonderful way to, um, to sort of adjunctively treat uh, those ongoing illnesses. And that's very important during this time. It's not a time to really just to ignore everything else. It's a time to uh, continue to do a good job of, uh, of treating those. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 Got a couple of emails here. Uh, you know, we like to share those with our listeners from time to time. We do Sometimes we batch those together, but there's a, a, a couple that we wanted to address uh, on the program this morning. Uh, one is from a listener that says, I take a 10 milligram loratadine, that's with an L, pill every night before bed for allergy 
relief. Are there any over-the-counter options that are better? So loratadine is an antihistamine. It's a long-acting, non-sedating antihistamine. Uh, the trade name is Claritin, um, and uh, it went uh, generic some years ago. It's in the same family as Zyrtec and Allegra, or some other uh, antihistamines that are non-sedating that people can take. Has the advantage of being able to take it just once a day. Certainly uh, allergies in the state are really high right now. So generic loratadine is, is, um, that is available over the counter. And just a word about generics. Most of the time with most of these, they're okay to take in a generic form. There are some exceptions and some people may have some different, uh, different, uh, um, reactions to different things, uh, different medications, uh, just like they do to trade uh, to non-generic uh, medications. But loratadine is one that is probably okay to take in its generic form. Now, if if you can't find that, and then again, that's just the generic for Claritin, the Allegra uh, or the Zyrtec, those are also available, and certainly that would be sort of interchangeable. Usually, though, with antihistamines, a person finds that one works a little bit better than the other or may uh, have less side effects. Even though they're non-sedating, a lot of times you can have uh, some sedation with those. So that would be my recommendation. You can find that in most any uh, pharmacy or even places like uh, Walmart or uh, Sam's uh, if, if you need to get it. Certainly right now is a time that uh, everybody, including myself, has had a little bit of allergy problems. Uh, another email that we have here is uh, a question that's sort of pertinent to what uh, what's going on with uh, COVID-19. Uh, so the question is, if a patient has a pacemaker or defibrillator device and is not able to undergo the scans that we've read or used to diagnose the COVID progression, what are other options? Thank you for your continued trusted information and kind bedside manner. Thank you for that. Um, so a, a pacemaker, as most people know, or a defibrillator are devices that are implanted uh, underneath the skin in the body, and they have little wires, we call them leads, that are placed uh, within the heart itself, in the heart muscle or close to the heart muscle. And basically it's using patients, a pacemaker is used to pace the heart. So if there's a problem with the electrical system of the heart itself, a pacemaker will help to get that in rhythm. Sometimes it's just pacing the upper two chambers. Sometimes it's pacing both the upper two and the lower two chambers. Um, and that's something that gives that little electrical impulse. They're really fancy now. They have feedback from the heart itself or what's going on. Uh, they can have a minimum and a maximum rate. Sometimes they can just kick in when they're needed. Uh, really smart devices, um, and they have battery lives that are, um, you know, long-term so that you don't have to change those out very often. Uh, and then you can also do what's called interrogation of those devices, usually over the phone. So there's a way to do that um, remotely with your, cardi uh, with your cardiologist. Now, a defibrillator is a little bit different. Basically, it looks about the same. It's an implantable device that has those leads, but it's implanted in patients that have a risk of having a, a very serious um, heart rhythm uh, that could cause a heart attack. So basically, they are sensing for one of those, uh, for those activities, and then it'll give a little electrical shock to sort of re-synchronize the heart muscle itself. So it only does that, though, if it senses that. 
And they do have some that are combinations of the two, the pacemaker and defibrillator. And these devices are made out of metal. And there are some precautions that you want to have. I'm sure a lot of people, you know, for years when these first came out, they're like, don't get near a microwave. Don't get near strong magnetic fields uh, because these can interfere with the way these devices work uh, and could cause potential uh, um, uh, problems with how they're working on the, on the patient's heart. Uh, with COVID-19, I'm guessing that they're talking about a CT scan uh, with one of the tests that's being used. Usually most patients with COVID, particularly if they come to the hospital or are having respiratory system, symptoms, shortness of breath, cough, uh, they would most likely get a chest x-ray first. And uh, in some instances, they may go straight to a CT scan, but a CT scan would be next. And it can show you some of the more classic findings, uh, at least respiratory findings uh, in the lungs of COVID-19. Um, now, CT scan is okay if you have a defibrillator or a pacemaker. The, the one that you really don't need, or there's a little bit of conjecture about it, but most of the time, if you can avoid an MRI, uh, that is the one that you want to avoid. And is, at least for the lung symptoms, it's not recommended to get an MRI in the lungs a CT scan would give you a much better picture. So thankfully, those with a defibrillator or pacemaker can, uh, can get that CT scan. Now, it's always a good idea if you have those devices uh, that you uh, let somebody know, make sure those around you, if you're not able to talk, if you come into the um, emergency uh, department, you may want to let somebody else know uh, or carry those little cards. They make these little cards and identification of those devices so that you can carry with you at all times and present those to somebody so they know exactly what's going on. There are some other precautions. I mentioned one with the MRI, uh, ionizing radiation. If you're getting radiation therapy for certain things, that could potentially damage the devices. Uh, certain uh, surgical uh, instruments or techniques um, which, uh, which calls, uh, are used for cauterization of different things, different tissues, uh, you do have to uh, take some precautions there. Uh, and use a bipolar uh, instead of a unipolar um, uh, cauterization um, tool. Uh, so again, just letting, letting your physician know, they'll know exactly what to do and which things to avoid if you have those kinds of, of devices. But thankfully, a CT scan is something that you can get if you have those. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing a doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, taking your calls and emails about any questions that you might have about your health or the health of someone near and dear to you. The number to call if you have a question is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's one 877 
672-7464. We're still remotely uh, broadcasting. At least uh, there's uh, people at the studio, of course, uh, that are producing the show. And thanks to Kevin Farrell for that every week. Um, uh, but I am still distant. I'm just trying to do my part in, um, in trying to distance myself uh, from different situations. So we're not... Uh, not passing this thing around like we uh, like we should do. So uh, just uh, keep that in mind as you go about your daily life. Um, some of the things that you're more inclined to do and want to do, uh, just take some uh, precautions in doing that. We have one, <clears throat> a couple of callers on the line. We're going to go to Marsha, I believe, first from Jackson. Hello. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, this is a COVID question, protecting yourself. I have, I go, when I go out, I have, you know, one of the homemade masks. I've made it out of a bandana, you know, with the rubber bands. Uh, right. I got an idea, and I wanted to ask if this might be effective. I mean, I may not be 100%. Uh, I have an old, I, I used to have a cat drinking fountain, and with a drinking fountain, you put charcoal filters down in it, okay? Well, I still have a char- those charcoal filters, and I actually stuck one in the bandana in the inside the bandana up against my nose and mouth. Would that is that any kind of effective? Would that have anything? You, you can't see sunlight through it. You can still breathe through it. Yeah, it's it's it probably is not going to be much more effective than what you have with the bandana. Um, okay. And, uh, uh, it's it's just the size and the type of particles. So again, these are sort right. of medium-sized aerosolized particles. So it's not something that can stay in the air a long time under normal conditions, but it's on okay. those respiratory droplets. So yeah. okay. um, any kind of barrier like that can help uh, sort of prevent that from getting into your nose or your mouth. Um, um, but it's it. That's probably, you know, putting the filters in there. And I've, I've actually got a mask that somebody made, and they put, like, coffee filters or things in there. It's probably okay. okay. I mean, it's certainly not going to harm you, but it's one more right. barrier that that has to come through. But it's probably not going to cut down your risk that much. Okay. Um, one thing to keep in mind, particularly with those cloth masks, is to make yeah. sure that you're washing those frequently. So if you go out, uh, yeah. you know, and you're, you're uh, certainly wearing them to... Uh, prevent the spread as you move around in, in areas that you can't, particularly if you can't maintain a six-foot distance uh, between yourself and somebody else, uh, okay. then when you get home that night, you need to wash that. And you don't have to be fancy about washing it. Washing it in, you know, regular detergent like you normally would, uh, either hand-washing it or putting it in the washing machine should be fine uh, with uh, some warm to hot water. Um, okay. But, I would also uh, think putting it in the dryer would probably help, too. Yeah, that's uh, fine. So the heat, the heat from that might help. But the main thing is those viral particles are disrupted. Uh, they have a, a bilipid layer. So it's a double right. layer of lipids that is the, on the wall. And that gets disrupted from either detergents or soap. Um, so that's, that's important. One other thing I would, I would say to I always trying to uh, remind people about this, uh, because you can be a little, sometimes you can think, well, I've got my mask on, I'm going to be fine. But it's actually how you take that on and off is important. So you don't want to put your hand on the front part of it. Um, Or if you do, when you take it off, you want to wash your hands. And don't forget about the things that you touch while you're out. Uh, You know, the alcohol gels, those certainly are fine if they have a 60% or higher alcohol content. Uh, Or, again, soap or water. 
is is just fine afterwards. But if you're out and about, I have I have one of these in my car. If I have to go in anywhere, say to the grocery store or the pharmacy, um, I can use that when I um, when I get back in my car. Um, but just keep that in mind too. And then that distancing from people, if you can stay about six feet, thankfully, a lot of the stores now they'll have things sort of, uh, if you've been out, you've probably noticed this, they have some tape or they'll have yeah. some, you know, indications about where to stand. And, yeah, um, great. I'm, a, I'm, I'm really, it's pretty low risk, but I'm really, uh, attuned now to when I give somebody my, my card to pay for something, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's another you know, point of contact back and forth mm-hmm. or, or a screen that you're punching in like your code for your, you know, for your credit card or your bank card. Yeah. Uh, just, just be mindful of those things too. Yeah. Let, let me ask you one other quick question as far as that's concerned. We don't, sure. we you know, we don't get the gloves, right? Because you guys need them, the doctors and the nurses and all you guys need them. So I, I am substitution, substituting, believe it or not, doggy poop bags. I figure if it's oh, yeah. from my dog's poop, it'll protect me from the from the viruses yeah. that might be on the yeah, if, pads. <laughs> right. Yeah, that should be fine. Um, it, yeah, and those are easy to take off too. And again, remind yeah. you know just remembering as you take them off, it should be inside out. Um, exactly. And it's sort of like oh, yeah. picking up that poop. You're right. <laughs> so <laughs> that should curiosity. be that should be just fine. Yeah. Okay. Good. I appreciate you. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you, Marsha. Bye-bye. Thanks, Marsha. We appreciate your call. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. If you have a question for Dr. Jimmy this morning, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Next on the line, it's Tommy calling in from Kosciuszko. Go ahead, Tommy. Hey, good morning, Dr. Stewart. Good, good morning. morning. Real quick, uh, kind of a question. I, I wanted to know if there's been any records kept on people who were being tested for this COVID-19 uh, or if they, if they were tested, did they, were they positive? Were they negative or did they die and have they recovered if they had had the flu shot? Yeah. So that's, I've heard about that as far as a, one of the trials um, is looking at those kinds of, of co-infections with other viruses we do know um, because a lot of the testing that's done is not just for COVID, but other things like the flu uh, and other viruses. There's a viral panel that a lot of patients are getting in some instances. So uh, you can get both at the same time. And of course, if you have both, you would think that you're going to have a worse outcome. We don't have all the data on that. Now, all of this, you know, there's not really a central database that's, that, to my knowledge, that's, that's capturing that. Of course, all of this goes back to that individual patient's records. And um, there are a, a lot of these clinical trials look at that data. It's not just about testing different things to treat the virus with, like new medications or medications that we use for other things. Uh, it's also uh, a lot of the data is going to be like, okay, what's, what has happened in those patients that did not get vaccinated for flu? Do they have worse outcomes? Uh, so a lot of people are probably going to be contacted to enroll in those studies, and that would be really helpful uh, to, to everybody else, particularly if we have to go through this in the fall or in you know, next year. Um, it'll be very important to know those kinds of things. Now, knowing what we do about flu every year, it's incredibly important 
moving into the fall that once we have that flu vaccine for the fall that you go ahead and get it. I mean, I would be a huge advocate for that uh, just because, again, that's one thing that you don't have to worry about having at the same time if you do get exposed to COVID. But it's an excellent question, and um, it's not something that you, you know, one of the populations of, of people that we have continued to see in person in the clinic is our younger patients. So those uh, particularly uh, who are getting immunizations. So that's one thing that we've tried to prioritize. We don't want to lessen those regular immunization visits right now uh, in particular because you would hate for another outbreak of another disease to, uh, to, to be at the same time. So excellent question. That's one of those thing, things that they're studying right now is, uh, but I don't think there's, if you get tested, it's not like a national database or anything like that, to my knowledge. Now, a lot of this is re- is reported to health departments uh, locally and statewide, and then the health department can strategize about how to treat it and where to treat it, uh, and they may be doing some research down the line to, again, contact those people saying, hey, can we, you know, do you want to help out and, and give that information to us to use uh, and then also the CDC gets that information reported to them too. But most of that is tracking and uh, in, in demographics about who's being affected. So we'll know better how to treat that and how to identify those people who have it. Yes, sir. Well, thank you very much. I just thought that if these people, I do know people who do not get flu shots. And I thought yep. if, they, if they knew how important the flu shot was and just helping a little bit towards this COVID-19, it might uh, help them to decide to get them next time they're available. Absolutely. And, and Tom, something else, too, is that if you don't get the flu vaccine and you do get the flu and it, it hits you hard enough that you end up in the hospital, yeah. that takes up that hospital bed for somebody with COVID. That's a, that's a resource problem, too. So, you know, we, we would like to prevent all of that as much as we can. We're really hoping that uh, the good people who are looking at different vaccines for this are going to come up with one eventually. But in the meantime, we need to be uh, using those vaccines that we know we have appropriately. Yes, so that's a great that's a great thing to bring up. OK, well, thank you, Dr. Stewart. I enjoy your program. I'll keep listening. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for calling. Appreciate your call, Tommy. Next on the line, uh, Dr. Jimmy, we've got Sherry calling in from Gautier. Sherry, it's your turn. Go ahead. Hey, Dr. Stewart. How are you this morning? Good. How are you doing? Wonderful. I've got an esophagus problem. With, with, it stretches and shrinks a lot, structure. And I had an EDG uh, in January for Botox, and it lasted about a month. And now the doctor wants to schedule another Botox injection, and he says that I might have to go to Jackson and get this surgery where they go in through the mouth and they clip the muscles that cause a spasm. Right. Do you know anything about that? I don't know what it's called. I don't know how to look it up or anything. Yeah, I think that's called an esophageal, the fancy term for it is esophageal myomectomy. Um, So uh, basically they go in and for everybody else who's not familiar with this, esophageal strictures, the esophagus of course is the tube that goes from the throat down into uh, the stomach, the upper part of the stomach. And it's a muscular tube that helps to propel food down as it contracts. And normally it contracts rhythmically from the top to the bottom. Uh, Sometimes you can get strictures or scar tissue or uh, from from the tissue inside that tube 
or sometimes you can have uh, esophageal spasm, which is that muscle is not appropriately pulling food down. So it's spasming, just like you would get a muscle spasm uh, in your leg or a muscle anywhere else in your body. So uh, a couple of different ways that they can, they can uh, treat that is, as you mentioned, uh, the EGD is where they stick that lighted scope down into the esophagus and they can do some testing while they're there. They can also do some interventions. Botox has been used pretty effectively, uh, at least short term. Uh, so they make these little injections in the wall of the esophagus to help loosen those muscles up. Um, now, like you said, the, the drawback from that is in a lot of patients, it doesn't last very long. So after doing that a couple of times, if it's not working, then they can move on to further testing or further, further, um, uh, procedures. And what they, what they do with this other procedure is they, again, it's a, it's a, a gastroenterologist who's a specialist who has a, probably a specialty within that, uh, that disease spectrum. And what they're going to do is put that the same type of scope down and look at that wall. And then they'll make some incisions into the muscular layer uh, to try to loosen that up. And those work a little bit better over the long term than the Botox. Of course, any kind of procedure like that, you want to be sure you're asking about the risk, uh, what kind of benefits, what to expect afterwards so you can get all that information. But that's, that's probably what they're talking about is a myomectomy, an esophageal myomectomy myomectomy that's it uh-huh okay i can look it up and get some information my doctor's real good at what he does but he's not real good at communicating oh. um, <laughs> well all of us struggle with that from time to time so <laughs> but um, okay thank you so much yeah. i have to okay. get on the phone all right now. good luck to you thank you thank you i'm dr jimmy stewart thanks for listening to the original southern remedy podcast You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. No matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone, Everyday Tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy with Dr. Jimmy this morning, taking your calls for any kind of healthcare question that you might have. You're welcome to call this morning by dialing 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can always send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. I believe we've got Edward from Hines County on the phone. Good morning, Edward. Thanks for calling. You're welcome, and th- thanks for being there. Listen, uh, just a brief fact. I just turned 75. I'm on my 13th year of a kidney transplant. I grew up in New York and spent many afternoons watching Mickey Mantle on the Bronx Barmers, and I really feel bad for all these people and kids and, that are stuck that will never have the experiences that I went through. Now, what's going to happen if they don't make a vaccine? It looks like yeah. this stuff is pretty tough, and... Uh, 
Uh, I got faith in science and everything, but this thing here is is something that's extraordinary. And if we don't have a vaccine, what's going to happen? Yeah, I wish I had Everett a, a, a good crystal ball to really look at that into the future and predict that. Um, certainly, that's what everybody's trying to do the best that they can, just to have contingency plans. So there's a couple of, of big variables. If we don't, let's say that we don't, we're hoping we do, uh, what could happen? Uh, number one, because of what we know from other coronaviruses, uh, this could go through a cycle where it, it affects um, people in the way that it's doing right now, either the first big season, uh, the year that it comes through, or one or two of those seasons or more, and then it may sort of go away. Um, that's a similar thing that happened with SARS, sort of a, a cousin to, uh, to COVID-19. Uh, MERS, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, is another one that uh, popped up uh, in the last uh, decade. And it still pops up in some areas, but it doesn't affect large numbers of, of people in the way or spread in the way that this strain is. So we just don't know enough about this uh, in this first season to really understand that. Um, treatments and early diagnosis are other things in the same way that we have flu tests uh, for people so that we can identify them would be the biggest thing right now. Some of the things that we're doing, you know, in a perfect world, a perfect country, if we could test every individual and have a, a point of care test, that means you get the results really quick. Uh, right there. And it was very accurate. I know a lot of people have developed these for COVID-19, but the problem is they're not very accurate uh, yet. But if we had those and we knew right then and there, then we could isolate that one individual who tests positive in any contacts and you wouldn't have to isolate the whole population. So we wouldn't have the effects that you mentioned, uh, not just, uh, you know, huge economic effects, but the things that we've enjoyed like going to a baseball game, going to sporting events, gathering together with your friends and your family, reunions, uh, church services, all these things are being impacted in the way that we live and communicate with people. And it is crazy frustrating. I am, I am just as frustrated, I think, as everybody else. Uh, and in, in, uh, in you're torn between how do we stay as safe as we can to how can we get back to what we really need, which is that interaction with other people. So, I, you know, that being said, I don't know. I, we, I really don't know. And I, I would really be hesitant of anybody who's taking a stab in the dark to know what this is going to be uh, in the future if we don't have that vaccine. Um, the, the, again, we can draw some conclusions through what we know other coronaviruses have done in the past, um, but it's, it's not an exact science. And as these viruses, just like flu, changes from year to year, and sometimes we have strains that are more, uh, uh, have more negative effects on the body, have more negative effects on certain populations, the coronavirus group is another one that does that. And unfortunately, they do have animal reservoirs, too, uh, that, they, um, that they can reside in and the genome of these viruses gets cha changed when they do that. Um, you know, you, you mentioned you're, you're 75. You've seen a lot. Well, in your lifetime, we've gone through several things like this, um, uh, maybe not to the same extent. The last time something this huge hit uh, the world was probably 1918 with Spanish flu. We've certainly had other little things to pop up. But what we know is every once in a while, every 75 to 100 years, you have something big like this 
Um, and to date, although it is terribly destructive and I don't want to minimize the loss of life or impact to families that this is going to have because it is huge worldwide and has a lot of other uh, a lot of other effects. But um, people go on. You know, we need to be resilient in how we deal with this. Some things may need to change. Uh, and they did. If you look at the history, I've been reading up on Spanish flu in 1918. There were a lot of things that had to change uh, during that time uh, period for people to really adjust. And I, no doubt we're going to have to do the same thing this time. But I'm confident that um, on the other side of this, that there's going to be a lot of resilience in how we react to these. All right, Edward, thanks for your call. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. If you have a question for Dr. Jimmy this morning about COVID-19, the coronavirus, or about your medical health in general, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 So, Dr. Jimmy, I've got a question for you. I like to play tennis, sure. but obviously haven't been able to play as much uh, here recently, and I know I've heard of muscle memory, and so I've been in my living room uh, at night uh, swinging my racket at an, an imaginary tennis ball and that sort of thing. And so uh, golfers, baseball players, tennis players, uh, is muscle memory a thing, and, and how does it work? Yeah, it's a bit of a misnomer. It is a thing. Um, you know, unfortunately, we're not going to have the Olympics this year. I'm a huge fan of the Olympics. Uh, hopefully we're going to have it next year. Um, but you'll see uh, athletes do this as they're preparing for an event. Um, they're going through that in their mind. They may have the same kind of motions that they're doing, particularly sports like you mentioned, like golf, tennis, uh, baseball, anything where you're doing it's very specific movements over and over and over again. So muscles themselves can be conditioned um, to work better, work stronger, faster, um, have more endurance through increased repetitions through what you do uh, in practice. And that's that's one thing. But the muscle memory is something a little bit different. So it's not really about the muscles. It's about the nerves and about the brain, those areas in the brain that control those movements. So if in, in uh, another area where you see this is, uh, of course, musical instruments. So uh, playing the piano, uh, over time, what you're doing is you're training those parts of your brain to send those impulses to those muscles in your hands to do things over and over again. And eventually you get to the point where you don't think about it. It's the same way as a baby learns to walk. You can think of how difficult that is. Or if an, an adult that may have a stroke has to learn how to walk again, and it's excruciatingly difficult to do that up front. But eventually, that baby gets to the point where they can do that, and they don't think about it. Um, walking around, most people don't have to think about that. It's an innate thing that we've learned how to do. Our brains take that over as an involuntary process. We just say to our brain, hey, I want to go over to that side of the room, and our brains kick in. So the same thing with that that's sort of muscle memory. So doing those repetitive things over and over again, that will get your brain conditioned to the point to move those muscles in the ways that it needs to to accomplish that task, and you can get better. That's exactly why athletes do that over and over and over again. And while you know, we used to not see many people warm up, or the warm-ups were very imprecise, we know a lot more. We have a lot more data on warming up, and, and in particular, uh, activating those muscle fibers, but it's really not much about the muscle as it is about the nerves going from the brain to those muscles. So it is a thing, but you can, uh, you know, you continue to do that. 
I wouldn't recommend uh, hitting that ball inside your house, though, Kevin. (laughs) My cat agrees with you on that one. Uh, One more (laughs) follow-up, quick follow-up, and then we've got to go to break. Is it important, then, if you're doing that, to make sure that you're doing the motion correctly but in the same way each time so that your brain is sending the right signals? Yeah, doing it as close as possible to those actual motions would be important. If you deviate from that, your brain's going to learn other pathways in you know in in, uh, in space in t- in uh, in time to um, to and it's not going to be as precise. You know, think about the best golfers in the world. They do the same thing every time they approach the ball the same way. Their practice swings are the same way. Um, that's very specific. Uh, it's the same thing with tennis. Same thing with other sports. If you do it over and over and over again, you're training your brain to do that. Uh, and sometimes you're training your your um, your brain to do things uh, in ways that um, uh, that that you can you can replicate over and over and over again when you're tired or when you're fatigued. Uh, so that's you know it's like learning any other activity: driving, riding a bike. All those things, you're doing it over and over and over again until you get proficient with it. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, taking your calls. Um, Lots of uh, good items that we've covered uh, during this hour. As always, we really appreciate our callers calling in. I believe we got uh, Rosemary on the line. Rosemary, you're next up. Yes, good morning. I would like to know, um, I had a sister that passed away from the virus, and I am wanting to know her um, daughter is wanting someone to come clean my sister's house up. My uh, niece also had the virus, but she got out of the hospital. And I was wondering, should she hire someone to come clean it up or should all the rest of my sisters go and help her clean it up? Or Because I, I really don't want it. And I was wondering, will it be safe for me to go and help her? Yeah, how long has it been since um, since someone who had COVID in the house? How, how long has it been since they've been in the house? My sister passed away last week. Okay, and, and, and I'm sorry still, to hear that. I, it's yeah. that that's terrible right now, and and just with the, um, you know, even if you don't have COVID, and right now it's it is so much difficult to go through the grieving process and everything that we normally expect with funerals in different ways. Um, so I would say it, that it would be fine to either hire somebody or have somebody go in. Um, they'd need to know that, you know, that they did have, uh, somebody did have COVID 
even on surfaces like stainless steel or plastic, if, if someone coughed and there's respiratory secretions that landed on that or doorknobs uh, in the house, things like that, most there's been enough time that it's probably not going to be alive. Uh, it's not going to be viable for somebody to catch it. However, okay. I would take some precautions. I would have somebody wear some gloves. Probably don't need to wear a mask in the house unless you're around other people, you know, in close proximity, because uh, there's not going to be anything floating around in there. It's going to be all on surfaces if it is. And then just wipe all those surfaces down. You can use a um, uh, soap and water solution, should be fine. Um, or if you wanted to use some of the like household cleaners, uh, particularly if they have bleach in them, they should be fine as well. But that should be fine. I would just go through and wipe all those surfaces down, and you shouldn't have to do anything else. Thank you. I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to her. I'm so sorry. That That is a tough situation. I, I'm sure, though. You know, uh, it, we all can do what we can do. That's what we have to to uh, to yeah. focus on. And, um, you know, if you have other family members, I would reach out to them. I talk still have six more. We, I have six more sisters and I am a Christian and I know God is going to mend my broken heart. She was my oldest sister. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Lean on those. Uh, lean on your faith and lean on those other people. Those are the things that are going to get you through. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, Kevin, I, I think we had one more question about COVID. I think it was about uh, a caller that uh, had called in about sexual transmission of, the, of COVID. Is that correct? Yes. So um, there are certain ways that, that we know that it is transmitted um, through secretions, mainly that uh, from, from your mouth, from your nose, uh, tears, they're thinking it's probably not really high on the, on the list of, of things. And also a fecal oral route. So, uh, it does affect the GI tract and GI tissue. So if somebody has diarrhea with a lot of patients or having diarrhea with the illness, um, then you could potentially get it from contact, direct contact with that. Uh, sexual contact, I, we don't have any evidence of it yet, but if you're, uh, if somebody's positive and you're having and you know that certainly that would be close enough to them that you could get other secretions, uh, you know, from from orally or if they sneezed or coughed on you, you'd be close enough. So I, I would probably avoid that if you can. Now, certainly if somebody's asymptomatic and they have it, uh, could they, you know, potentially do that? Possibly. But again, you're probably going to be in much, you know, closer contact with those other ways of getting it. So. Uh, avoiding that as much as possible in, in some, someone who's positive would be the thing that I would recommend. Um, again, we, we're learning a whole lot more about this as days go on. And uh, that, again, one of the more frustrating things, uh, certainly a lot of frustrations with, with what's going on right now is that information comes slow. Uh, we want to, to really latch on to hope and we want to give ourselves and patients hope um, uh, there's there there to you know sort of push through in these situations, but um, it it's I would caution people you know it, when somebody says hey we've got a cure, we're going to be skeptical about that in the scientific and and health community until we absolutely know uh, that that's going to be something that we can we can treat this with that we can either diagnose it better uh, and it just takes time it takes a lot of time 
months, sometimes years to do that. I'm hoping that it will be sooner more than later, but um, we're going to hope that uh, we have put in some good work um, to uh, to figure out how we can uh, we can beat this. And I, again, I think this is something that uh, I have no doubt eventually we'll get there. A uh, couple more minutes. Uh, one last uh, email question that uh, someone sent in uh, about rosacea. Just pulling it up right here. Um, the question was that they were diagnosed with um, with rosacea at an early age um, and uh, and psoriasis, which was diagnosed and treated in, in an early age. She had these issues as early as 15 years old, but didn't have ro- rosacea until she was 19, and psoriasis was diagnosed when she was over 35. Could the delay in diagnosis and treatment have affected the outcome? I have terrible redness on my face, and the psoriasis is all over my body, but especially bad on my scalp and arms, and started to affect my face as well. So uh, rosacea is a um, not a fairly common, but it is, you can see it a lot, uh, it's a skin disorder, uh, on the mainly on the face. Psoriasis is a little bit different. It's also a skin disorder. And then you can also have some autoimmune problems with psoriasis. Uh, rosacea is generally, it's just um, affects uh, the skin, particularly around the face. Uh, the question about early diagnosis is important, particularly for psoriasis. Psoriasis being an autoimmune problem, if it goes on long enough, it can affect those other tissues. Uh, joint pains and joint problems can be uh, a problem in some subset of patients. Uh, and uh, the skin disorder, uh, we've had a lot of, of really good results from treatment that does target the immune system. Um, and in particular, if you have those joint problems, in fact, there's a lot of commercials on TV about that. So if you develop, if you wait until you develop the joint problems, the longer those go on in the same way that rheumatoid arthritis uh, affects things or other autoimmune diseases, then you may do some some more damage. Um, but the problem is, it's a lot of these overlap, and this is a great example of how you can have one diagnosis and then a couple of years later have another one, particularly if they're autoimmune diseases. And some of these have these overlap syndromes where they'll be more like a number of them rather than just one uh, distinct autoimmune disease. But early diagnosis is important. Um, uh, It just takes time sometimes, and that could change based on the symptoms that you develop. So I would go see a good dermatologist. If you have joint problems with the psoriasis, a rheumatologist is who you would need to talk to. Sometimes they work in conjunction uh, to treat this, particularly if it's with uh, uh, in a, uh, autoimmune type therapy, but that, that's, that's what I would say is it is important to have that early diagnosis, but sometimes it's just really difficult to get that, uh, just based on what symptoms are out there, uh, and how they present. It can take some time. All right. That's all the time we have for this week. I want to, uh, thank all of our callers for calling in. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, uh, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. You can always send us an email, send it to remedy at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding is provided in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and support from listeners just like you.
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy Podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org.